That Triathlon Show 393. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Michele Zanini. Michele is a PhD candidate at the University of Loughborough who is studying the connection between running economy, durability and strength training and he's also a physiologist and strength and conditioning coach with the Italian Triathlon Federation and uh, a third arrow in his quiver is uh, working alongside uh, the legendary running coach Renato Canova. We ended up talking for uh, two hours, so I decided to split this interview into two parts. So today is part one, and next week we'll hear part two. And uh, in part one here today, we'll hear about uh, Michele's work with the Italian Triathlon Federation. We will discuss the science of running economy and durability. And then next week, we discuss strength training for endurance performance and uh, Michele's work with Renato Canova, as well as uh, Canova's training principles. Before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits a pace stroke rate and heart rate this means that you can execute your swim workouts uh, better whether it's pushing harder when you're starting to fall off the pace or holding back when you're accidentally going faster than you should it also means that if you're using a garmin watch in the pool you can finally get rid of that because the goggles will automatically start and stop each interval when you push off from the wall or reach the wall at the end and they will give you accurate splits uh, based on that Personally, I also think that it makes swimming more fun and uh, motivating when you have some uh, feedback within the intervals, not just between intervals. And it uh, does make me want to go to the pool more often as I have the uh, accountability of the goggles uh, throughout the entire workout. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency, even if you're short on time. It is a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality Senate workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. It is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming, like your catch and your power, and you can isolate them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk-free for 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on senatesinter.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's part one of my interview with uh, Michele Sonini. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Michele. How are you doing? Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And how are you, Michael? I'm very good. Thank you. Uh, so uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. Uh, who are you for the listeners that haven't heard about you before? Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me over, first of all. I've uh, been a, a hungry um, follower of your podcast in the past few years, so uh, really glad to be invited and wanted to commend on uh, your efforts, at, uh, the, the effort you put over the last uh, few years on this. Uh, but yeah, I'm a, a physiologist and I'm finishing off a PhD in exercise physiology at Loughborough University. Alongside, I work with... Uh, professional athletes, uh, both in running and triathlon. And uh, I work primarily as SNC coach and physiologist for them, together with my job with the Italian Triathlon Federation at the moment. So can you explain that uh, in a bit more detail? So you work with the Italian Triathlon Federation, uh, and that's with the triathletes, obviously. But when you mentioned working with runners, what is, what is the, the setting of that work? 
Yeah, so I've been working with uh, runners from uh, probably seven, eight years now. And uh, I've had the chance to go to Kenya a couple of times with uh, two different coaches and then started developing uh, uh, some connection with Renato Canova. And I had the chance to be close to him for a few years now. And uh, yeah, been supporting part of the SNC for for his group, uh, as well as just applying uh, the knowledge from Renato to uh, less uh, professional athletes or let's say uh, recreational runners or uh, non-professional runners really, and then moved uh, to triathlon from there. Yeah, no, that's a really cool opportunity and we'll discuss more about that in a little bit. Um, and But then one other follow-up on your introduction is your PhD that you're finalizing. What is the topic of that PhD? Yeah, we're basically looking into the relationship between uh, running economy, uh, durability or fatigue development or fatigue resistance. I think we still have to find the precise word to describe that, but basically how physiology changes as we fatigue and how that affects performance and uh, uh, linking up with uh, strength training and how that can be helpful to prevent fatigue development. And uh, I work with... uh, Rich Blagrove, which has been probably among the most influential people in, in the area, as well as Jonathan Follon, which is very much into uh, neuromuscular performance and uh, and uh, running economy itself. Yeah, and Rich Blagrove has been a guest on the podcast before, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What I want to uh, talk about first, I guess, is uh, just the role that, as you described, being a physiologist and strength and conditioning coach within a high-performance setting like the Italian Triathlon Federation. So uh, can you talk in a bit more detail about what that role entails? Yeah, um, I think when we look into the uh, applied side of physiology for supporting athletes, uh, when when we get uh, the scientific lens, uh, the research lens, we always think about lab testing and uh, and how to optimize that. When you work with athletes, you have a very big part of it, which is uh, related to the race demands and the uh, training uh, um, measurements and, and feedback, basically. So I would say the three roles that uh, we try to achieve uh, or the three outcomes we, we try to support uh, with the federation at the moment is racing analysis and therefore trying to work out the demands uh, that uh, the specific race has and how the individuals we're working with, uh, they can uh, bridge the gap between their performance uh, or their physiology at the moment uh, to the race demands. Then supporting training prescription via physiological testing. uh, So we may get uh, some threshold assessments and make sure that they're training at the right intensity or if they need uh, extra work in an area, then we can try to give some some support on that. And then uh, try to support uh, training methodology and uh, racing strategy via uh, evidence-based support, uh, which uh, can then... uh, basically be implemented by the coach uh, based on uh, their individual uh, needs. So we can say, well, actually, you may want to add this type of workout uh, with uh, with this given athlete because uh, you, you're you missing an anaerobic capacity sort of uh, um, outcome, for example. Um, so f- to give an example, uh, just recently we've got a test from, from an athlete which is racing uh, in uh, in World uh, Triathlon Series uh, and uh, he's been lacking a little bit uh, the specificity on the run. 
so he would get uh, a very good swim and very good uh, bike. Uh, but then when he comes to the run, he still has to develop that uh, pace uh, that is required for the races. And uh, when you look back at his uh, training logs, you could see there was a lack of that specific intensity. So running, uh, I think in World Triathlon Series at the moment, where if you want to be top 10, you're around, run, you have to run around three, uh, 255 to 302, 305, uh, probably G3, 3 flat 302. Um, and yeah, if you're training uh, very far away from there, you won't be able to achieve that in a race, mainly when, when you got a runoff bike. So the target uh, to develop over the last few months has been, well, try to get some consistent uh, uh, exercise uh, in that area, basically around the second threshold or just above the second threshold, which wasn't uh, happening before. Mm. And uh, just out of curiosity, because uh, there could be one or two possibilities here uh, that I see. I mean, one of them is that, well, this athlete never trained, that, that he was always training quite a bit below that speed. But then the other could be that I've also seen and heard about is that athletes go and do a bunch of really fast 400s on the track, 240 pace, 245 pace. But then in the race, they can only run at 310, 315 pace. So they are just training way above what they are actually capable of doing in, in racing. And somebody like Joel Filial has been um, some very kind of, I guess, outspoken uh, almost about how you have to earn the right to uh, to train at certain paces, basically right. racing, r- training closer to your race pace, and and there's no need to go above that. But of course, there's there's a push and pull there, I, I guess. But but what was the example with this athlete? Was he always training, or was he never training fast enough, or was it that he was just training too far above that race pace and not reaching that specificity? Yeah, uh, as you said, uh, you probably need a little bit of. Uh, speed support so this particular athlete was doing it if anything when we tested him his speed at view to max was pretty good and the first threshold was also good but the gap between view to max and the second threshold was a little bit uh, too much uh, and we look back at the training logs uh, and the type of workouts he's been doing recently and uh, you could clearly see that uh, that target wasn't happening that uh, intensity in training uh, wasn't wasn't happening and uh, I think that's bridging uh, two of the areas, well, all the three areas I've mentioned, actually. So we've got a physiological test uh, for which we could uh, uh, have an idea about what uh, uh, the athlete is lacking. We've got the race demands. Uh, so, well, we know that uh, to race at this level, you need to run at this pace. Uh, and then we've got the training log analysis for which we've realized, well, you're actually not doing as much uh, specific work uh, in that realm as you need to. Um, and probably we got the chance to speak about it later, but I believe uh, you you have a funnel of intensities uh, that uh, you, you need to work towards. So you got like your specific uh, race demands and uh, well, in running is very easy because you just have race pace in uh, other uh, sports is different in trials when you have the tactics, you have the ability to uh, run to stay on the bike and stay with, with the group uh, and uh, be able to produce maximal efforts continuously over the over the race. Uh, but to keep it simple for the run now, uh, you have that specific speed that you want to target for the race uh, and you can support it from both the endurance and the uh, speed end and funnel through from uh, something which is maybe 10% or 15% faster and slower and then go towards the the target speed as the training progresses 
so this runner was do he was doing both of that on the sides but he he was uh, not really hitting those specific paces is when you looked at his training log yes exactly okay okay got it well if he, uh, if he was hitting uh, you, you it would have been maybe just too little so maybe okay. you would get it for uh, two three kilometers in a workout of 10 and that probably is not enough because if you have to run an olympic distance that's going to be 10 kilometers at that space at that pace so if you train just two or three uh, that may not be specific enough uh, in some part of the season yeah uh, when you mentioned analyzing race demands, this is something that I think is really interesting in in short course uh, triathlon because obviously we we know the as you say the the paces on the run that, that are required and and the speeds on the bike and I I guess most athletes you do use a bike computer and power meter so the bike is a bit quite easy to analyze uh, on the, on the swim side we know again the splits but but the one thing I guess with the swim and the run most athletes uh, they or, well, nobody uses a watch on the swim and, and only very few athletes does it on the, on the run. So first of all, you have to, I guess, trust that the, that the distance is measured accurately. And there is in world triathlon, of course, they are, I think they have a 10% margin of error for the run. So the run could be between 9.6 to 10.4 kilometers and that would be okay. How, how do you, uh, analyze the race demands or even how a race went from that perspective when compared to long course triathlon i think there is you have a lot less data to actually work with yeah so um first of all i want to make clear that that's not only my work it's a team of four of us and uh, there's one person that just takes care of uh, the data analysis uh, so it's really a team effort uh, all the way through we and i think that gives us a lot of value to each other and to the team and to the office because I've got my ideas and somebody else might have slightly different ideas. And when we get together, when we get them together, it, it just makes it better, to be honest. And yeah, I want to commend his work because he's been super insightful in the last year and a half with, with the support of the team. But basically, from from the running perspective, we've got uh, uh, stride uh, footpots at the moment. We just fit it to the athlete, uh, or we try to fit it to the athlete uh, when uh, when they're about to race, uh, and then we just uh, keep the record of that. And we got well all the biomechanics data that uh, can be given from from the pod, and it's very accurate on the speed as well. So we tested it uh, uh, in the lab against uh, the uh, treadmill and uh, on the on the track as well. And uh, as soon as as long as you calibrate it uh, for the right uh, shoe, so it, it has some some errors based on the type of shoe you use. But as long as you calibrate it beforehand, uh, it is very accurate, and you can actually see the pacing of the athlete as well, because uh, you get splits uh, from the races, but they vary. They may be eight splits, they may be four splits, uh, and uh, you don't really get to see the final. Uh, uh, kick or the initial burst after after the race after sorry after the bike, while with uh, with the home pod, the, with the foot pod, you can actually see the full profile of the athlete and see how the behavior changes during the race or due to some some events happening within uh, within the run. So we've been trying to push uh, uh, coaches to to implement that in training as well, just to have a comparison between training and racing, and and yeah that. He's been quite helpful with with just pacing and and racing strategies for for the for the round part of the race. That's yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, really really nice way of of doing it because the stride can record 
in its internal memory, I guess, without without needing to have that watch to transmit to or or even a, a phone. Obviously, <laughs> you don't want to run with a phone in a race like that. So um, yeah, that's that's a smart smart way of doing it. The and uh, when you talk about the physiological testing and how that can inform training prescription, uh, are there any other other than the example you already mentioned? Are there any other examples that you could point to just to get a an a bit of a broader idea of how how this is used in a high performance setting, the testing and how it then relates to the training prescription. Yeah, so um, when when we look into the testing for these type of athletes, one thing that we want to consider is uh, the time that you have available. So it it gets very hard uh, to get full protocols that may be optimal, maybe very accurate, but they were they may require two, three, or maybe half a day of testing sometimes. So you really don't have that time with with athletes and uh, mainly with triathletes that they train uh, anything between 25 and 35 hours per week. Uh, so you really need to get uh, the test done quickly and try to get as many data as possible. So you may have to compromise a bit uh, the quality uh, of the test uh, and uh, try to get the most important uh, outcomes. Uh, so sometimes we prioritize the bike. Sometimes uh, we, we get bike and running. Uh, uh, it depends which part of the season we are in at the, uh, as well. So at the beginning of the season this year, for example, we just focus on the bike because uh, they needed uh, to build up a lot of uh, uh, kilometers on on the bike, and we wanted to make sure that they were riding at the right intensity. Whether after the winter period, uh, you want to have an idea of the baseline, uh, uh, well, post general preparation of ahead of the races, so you might want to test both. Uh, we've got some swimming testing as well, but of course that's a bit more complicated because you don't really have. Uh, the chance to measure as many uh, variables as you would get from running and, and cycling. Um, as for the testing itself, uh, we just try to run the test within uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, and uh, the bike uh, is a ramp test, uh, whether with the run, we tend to use a step test uh, with uh, lactate uh, measurements because that is probably a bit more uh, reliable with running. Uh, a ramp test with running due to the ventilation, which is slightly different on running. Uh, it, yeah, I, I find it a bit more difficult to interpret. Uh, so you can get VT1 and VT2, but uh, uh, yeah, I've, I found a bit more difficult than uh, using lactate threshold one and two for training, uh, uh, not really training prescription, uh, just, just uh, to get an idea about where the two thresholds stand and how far they are from VO2 max and uh, from uh, uh, from each other and why do you prefer the ramp test on the bike compared to the to the step test do you prefer the ventilatory thresholds because it is you can get them more reliably on the bike compared to the lactate thresholds uh that's it, probably just because it's quicker uh, so there's another physiologist that uh, takes care mainly of of the bike so again it's a teamwork uh, i take part of the strength and conditioning and uh, the running side and he takes care primarily of uh, the cycling side uh, but we work together and uh, yeah it's, it's really a push and pull of compromises uh, um, but yeah even re in research i think um, the uh, ramp test uh, works quite well and is quite reliable. Whether with, with running, you may get a bit more noise just to yeah, just due to the 
to the running, which is uh, by basically making bounce the wire as, as you're going along. So you may get a bit more issues. And even just like ventilation wise, you have a bit more variability on the run than, than on the bike. Mm. And uh, do you have any interest in the other physiological uh, parameters than the thresholds, whether they be ventilatory or lactate? Do you, are, for example, on the bike, I mean, you measure VO2 max, I'm sure, but is that an interesting parameter that you actually, or actionable parameter, let's say, that you identify certain athletes might be lacking there or certain athletes are more than uh, well-equipped enough in terms of VO2 max? Uh, And are there other parameters uh, that that you're also looking at uh, in terms of the physiological markers? Yeah, I mean, probably the full profile of VO2 max thresholds and uh, economy or uh, the cost of exercise either in running or cycling gives you the three determinants of performance from from joiner model and uh, you can have an idea based on the database we've got uh, on how the artists are sitting within uh, the ranges that we would expect uh, so powered view to max or, or speed view to max uh, we we have now a decent idea about where they should sit uh, for for this type of athletes and uh, maybe for junior athletes or under 23 athletes as well uh, so that gives you an idea about the development uh, of the athlete longitudinally as well and having the view to max uh, sort of as a ceiling uh, you can look into lt1 and lt2 or vt1 vt2 but basically the two thresholds uh, between uh, uh, moderate and heavy and heavy and severe domain uh, to uh, grasp an idea about how close they are to the ceiling. If you have an athlete which has got uh, LT1 of 95% uh, uh, V2max, you know that uh, that's going to be very hard to push up unless you raise the ceiling. So you you do maybe a little bit of work on uh, V2max speed to try to raise that. Uh, on the other hand, we also test uh, uh, fat max for cycling. Uh, we, well, we're looking into maybe considering doing it for running but uh, my belief is that the speed is going to be too low for for it to be trained uh, so um, we will looking into it but yeah at the moment we're not really estimating it and then we look into uh, some some maximal efforts uh, on the bike uh, for for power production and uh, uh, maximal power there uh, Finally, we've got some testing from a uh, strength perspective and uh, and reactivity perspective. So uh, drop jumps and uh, isometric mid-type pool at the moment that we're trying to implement uh, uh, at training camps when uh, the athletes, they come all together and we, we can test them back to back one after the other. And uh, you've talked about how this is uh, a teamwork and a team effort. How does, how do you, as a physiologist and uh, the other physiologists uh, work with the coaches is there a lot of push and pull there between the coaches have their ideas and uh, and the physiologists have their ideas or or are you generally on the same page uh, how how does that work in general yeah uh well depend it, it really depends on the person so um one thing that uh, i personally try to focus initially is just to get to know the coach and uh, the athletes uh, and uh, try to understand uh, their their way of working and even just like their way of communicating really Uh, because communication to me is key uh, and uh, you see day in day out in any environment uh, you can be you can be very knowledgeable but if you can't communicate uh, appropriately uh, you really lack uh, 
opportunities you really uh, struggle creating an impact so first of all you want to make sure that your input can be taken uh, in in a positive way from the coach and then from there you can start uh, giving inputs so it's it's initially just try to create the trust between what you're doing uh, and uh, what you can provide uh, to the coach and then just try to suggest uh, implementation of of uh, optimization of training or racing uh, or maybe just make a comment about well this race went this way this may be the reason uh, so initially it is tough when you get into the new environment because well nobody really knows who you are and what you can give to them so i think a lot of people try to just prove themselves as uh, they start off whether uh yeah it's probably best to try to provide the value as you go along so there's no need to step into the environment and say oh i, I can do this 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 it's more like well let's see uh what can i provide uh, just looking at uh, your work and uh, and how you're doing things at the moment. And from there, I'll try to give some insights about it. Uh, so one example I can give about this, is not related to physiology, it's related to strength training, uh, but uh, it, it is quite clear. So when I started supporting uh, some of the athletes uh, from a methodological strength and conditioning perspective, uh, I just stepped in the gym and uh, looked into the, the program of the athletes and, uh, and followed them uh, through, through the training, having conversations with the coaches uh, before and after training. And eventually, coaches just started asking my opinion and uh, tried to implement some of the suggestions. And then from there, uh, we started working together. And now uh, I've, uh, and I'm ending up supporting more than half of the national team um, directly and then just overseeing the methodology of uh, of other coaches as well. So, yeah, I think it would have been very different if I would have just stepped in and said, well, you're doing this, 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 uh, suboptimally, we can optimize it in uh, this, this, this way. It's really getting to know the environment you're in, first of all, and then uh, try to give insights about uh, uh, what can be changed or optimized. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Uh, thank you for that. Is there anything else that you want to mention or talk about uh, with in regard to working in a high-performance setting as a physiologist and strength and conditioning co coach before we move on to the to the next topic? Or do you think we, we covered most of it? Yeah, and no, I think we, we covered most of it. Again, uh, very important to, to just have a efficient, effective communication and uh, uh, just having a teamwork, uh, so having a two-way uh, communication, of course, within the sports science team and then uh, between uh, the sports science team and the coaches. Uh, I think we, we don't get uh, as much pressure as the coaches get because uh, the results, uh, they, they are dependent on our work, but not as much as the coaches. So you want to be yeah, aware of that when uh, you may yeah, want to try to implement something new and uh, the coach goes, well, uh, I don't know if I want to do it or they say, well, not now. So yeah, even just giving well-timed uh, suggestions, uh, it is probably important. Uh, and of course, coaches are more uh, interested in, in trying something new when they're far away from the main season or when some positive results are happening. So yeah, uh, that, that may be uh, something that uh, yeah, you want to consider strategically when you, can, you want to try to make an impact. Makes a lot of sense. Yep. 
so moving on a bit to the topics you mentioned that you're working on as part of your PhD. So um, strength and conditioning, running economy and durability. We'll discuss all of these topics a bit and how they relate. So uh, maybe we start with running economy. Uh, how, how important is that for running performance and uh, and are there differences between different events if we compare for example the the marathon with the uh, mid distance events for for example yeah of course uh, so running economy as we mentioned before it can be considered one of the three parameters uh, for uh, determining endurance performance or running performance you get vo to max uh, you get thresholds uh, or fraction of utilization of vo to max uh, at uh, a specific pace which can be the marathon or it can be a 10k or whatever it is and then uh, you've got uh, running economy so that's basically the cost uh, of uh, the exercise you you performing and well you can use either energy cost or oxygen cost uh, there's a lot of debate at the moment uh, between the two and which one is better um, i think at the moment we can just both yeah we can just use both and and uh, well uh, emphasize either of them depending on the the focus we have and what we want to inform um, as for uh, how does it change uh, as determinant of performance as the length of the of the run changes so the, the event moving from let's say 800 meters all the way to the marathon it gains uh, more uh, uh, influence as the race lengthens because basically you just uh, well running economy being the cost of running uh, the more economical you are uh, the more energy you're gonna have towards uh, the end of long lasting races so not it's not as important in 800 1500 meters so where you got a lot of anaerobic contribution as well where uh, the more you lengthen it uh, the farther it goes from uh, the, the farther the intensity goes from view to max uh, as well so the view to max may get a little bit less important and on the other hand uh, running economy gets more important because it's basically giving you an idea about how much uh, your uh, glycogen is depleting, for example, how much your storages are depleting as you exercise. And, uh, well, that capacity, it may eventually limit uh, your uh, your outcome. Uh, so um, one other important thing to, to mention about that is that with high-profile athletes, uh, uh, elite athletes, uh, I think it's a paper from the 1980s, 1990, uh, they pointed out uh, that uh, uh, running economy, it's more, uh, it can it can be more uh, correlated to performance than view to max. So basically when, when you're an elite, your view to max is going to be very similar across the board, but uh, <clears throat> running economy, it will vary and the athlete that is more economical, it may uh, be able to uh, perform better. Um, and of course, well, running economy influences both the speed of your to max uh, and the sub maximal speeds. Because uh, if you've got uh, an athlete that has a, uh, let's say, I don't know, 70 millimoles, um, sorry, for milliliters per kilo of uh, your to max, uh, um, but uh, you're using more oxygen uh, at the same speed, then you're not going to be uh, as quick at the speed of your to max. And likewise, 
for some maximal speeds. Uh, it's more, it's much, it's much more easy to <laughs> describe via graphic, uh, but well, that's one of the limitations of uh, of podcasts. Uh, and it, it is probably one of the capabilities that can be improved with training more than view to max. So. If you look at longitudinal data from Polar Radcliffe uh, from Andy Jones' paper in 2006, you can see that uh, from where she was, uh, I think, under 20, all the way when she set the world record in 2003, she kept her view to max fairly stable, uh, but her uh, running economy got better and better and improved by roughly 15%. And of course, alongside the performance went up and the speed of view to max uh, got faster and faster as well. Yeah, that's a good summary. And one thing just to uh, to mention as well for the listeners, when, when you say that running economy is one of the determinants of endurance performance along with VO2 max and fractional utilization, then basically what that means is that, is that uh, you, can, you can essentially, if you know all of those three parameters, you can predict the performance, which was done, I think, with Paula Radcliffe as well. Andy Jones did that, maybe not in a paper, but at least I, I remember him saying that he, he did that uh, very closely in, for yeah. several of her yeah. marathons. So, so knowing her VO2 max and her running economy and her fractional utilization, he could say that you're going to run a 216.30 or whatever it was for, for any given marathon. And, and yeah, of course, it's not necessarily going to be 100% correct, but you're going to get pretty close if you know those, those three parameters. And that's why they are the, the determinants of, of performance. Um, so, so yeah, you have des- uh, described how running economy is very important. It can be improved. It can be improved longitudinally, maybe more so than VO2 max. What are the factors then that that influence running economy? Yeah, um, you got a fair few, and I don't think we know all of them yet. Uh, so uh, we've got, of course, uh, uh, fiber type. So type uh, 1 fiber, they tend to be more economic and more efficient because they have a higher mitochondrial density and, and mitochondrial efficiency. So that's another parameter. You get uh, substrate availability and utilization. So uh, if uh, you're able to uh, use a higher percentage of carbohydrates of fat that may influence economy so uh, basically as the respiratory exchange ratio drops uh, and therefore the fat uh, utilization goes up uh, your uh, efficiency well not efficiency really uh, your economy gets worse because you're using about uh, 10-12% more oxygen to to use uh, fats than, than carbohydrates so uh, that's one thing to, to keep in mind when, uh, when you're looking into Maybe uh, analyzing some data from uh, from long-lasting efforts or long-lasting uh, trials, uh, area generally tends to drop, uh, and that increases fat utilization and therefore increases oxygen uh, utilization due due to that. So that is linked to the fact that well, we want to keep the carbohydrate utilization high, and therefore we feed carbohydrates during exercise, because otherwise, if we lean towards fat they're not as efficient in fact uh, world-class marathon runners they tend to run the marathon with uh, respiratory exchange respiratory exchange ratio about one and therefore primarily on carbohydrates Um, you've got uh, oxygen availability and delivery so basically the capacity to continuously deliver oxygen and therefore capillarization as well to to the muscle and that, well, that links up to altitude as well. So you may get uh, different uh, uh, economy 
to in, in altitude than at sea level and well it's probably linked more generally to uh to max as well so you get uh, uh need to enhance uh, the uh, oxygen delivery to the muscle and therefore you create more red blood cells uh, and that eventually uh, lifts up uh, your uh, VO2max uh, due to uh, peripheral uh, adaptations um, from instead a uh, biomechanical and uh, neuromuscular perspective uh, one of the key things uh, uh, that probably differs between running and cycling uh, or uh, other activities that they don't have a stretch shortening cycle is the stiffness of uh, the elastic structures in in the leg primarily in the achilles tendon that basically allows you to storage some of the energy that is coming from the landing of, of the step and then use that to propel forward. Uh, it is very difficult to estimate. So uh, when, when you look into some modeling related to the uh, contribution of uh, the energy production from uh, uh, um, the stiffness uh, of, of these structures or just like from, from elastic energy saved by, uh, by the running gait, uh, it really ranges from, uh, I believe it's 40 to 60%. Don't, don't quote me on that, uh, but there's a review paper about it and you literally see uh, the estimations uh, going all over the place. Uh, so I think we, we still struggle with, with really quantifying that just because it's, we, at the moment, uh, we can't really quantify mechanical uh, work in running, uh, and uh, you can have metabolic work, but if you don't have mechanical work, then you can't estimate the efficiency of running, uh, which which is basically giving you the capacity of, of these structures to uh, produce work. Uh, within the muscle, you have an efficiency which is up to 25%, uh, but again, Due to these structures, uh, it seems with running, it can go up to 40, 45, 50%, or perhaps even more with, uh, with sprinting. Uh, so basically, the more stiff uh, your structure tendons and elastic structures are, the less energy you need uh, to propel forward. And of course, on the other hand, uh, you may risk to get injured if the stiffness is, is too high. So uh, that's also to, to keep in mind. Uh, and then, We've got uh, muscle activation. Uh, it is quite difficult to measure because uh, you've got EMG, uh, which is uh, usually on uh, surface uh, and uh, at the moment is not accurate enough to, to give you uh, a specific insight uh, uh, unless you, you measure it multiple times. Uh, but it seems, uh, <clears throat> uh, for example, strength training can, can help with uh, reducing uh, the co-contractions and basically enhancing intra-intermuscular efficiency of, of the muscles. So that would reduce the cost of exercise because you're using less muscle fibers uh, for that given effort. And then when we look into uh, the other biomechanical parameters, you also have uh, ground contact time. So the lower the contact time, the more springy you are. So the more elastic you can be and you can use that potential energy from uh, from the step uh, to to propel forward uh, for that vertical oscillation uh, vertical oscillations uh, and that's basically telling you where where is the direction of your push so of course 
as you run, you can't go only forward, you, you go up and forward, uh, but the more vertical oscillation is gonna increase the cost because uh, you're pushing perhaps a bit too high. Uh, so with middle distance runners, uh, you can clearly see that uh, on, on a treadmill, uh, they tend to bounce much more than uh, the marathon runners, where the marathon runners, they tend to be much more flat. So vertical oscillation there will be quite different uh, and uh, that is gonna have an influence on, on the cost of, of exercise. And then, uh, well, recently footwear uh, they've been uh, a game changer for for running and even triathlon so i uh, don't think it's going to be part of the discussion today but certainly something that uh, uh, allows you to to save energy due to mechanical changes and mechanical uh, enhancement of efficiency and what are some training interventions or uh, training strategies training factors that allows a runner uh, to improve their running economy whether it's in the short term or in the long term over or years and years yeah uh, there's a good review from uh, barnes uh, 2015 about it and basically well when they they reviewed the the studies related to that they found uh, that high intensity training can improve uh, running economy acutely uh, you've got altitude training that can help uh, from from what we said before basically having more hemoglobin mass delivering oxygen to to the muscles you've got strength training and we may want to get in some details about it uh, uh, later if, if you got the time but basically uh, via strength training uh, you may alter that uh, stiffness that we mentioned before as well as uh, potentially just uh, enhancing the coordination within and between muscles uh, and therefore reducing uh, the utilization of uh, the fibers uh, and and then one other way for which strength training may may create uh, these adaptations uh, and and improve economy is uh, basically you increase this the strength seeding of the single fiber the strength the the yeah the basically the maximum strength of the single fiber and therefore to produce the same uh, effort the same uh, uh strike length uh, you may be able to use uh, less fibers because the strength of every given one of them is higher now so if your ceiling is 100 and you bring it up to 120 uh, and uh, let's say you're using 30 uh, percent of your fiber at 100 uh, when that goes up to 120 you may use 25 so that helps activating less muscle fibers it helps uh, uh, having a bit more uh, capillary um, uh, delivery of oxygen via the capillary because when fibers are contracting there's very little oxygen delivery happening uh, uh, to the fiber because it needs to be relaxed and well finally that will help uh, um, reducing the cost of running and as for other interventions uh, Andy Show, uh, in, I think he published a paper in 2017. Uh, he's the physiologist of British athletics and he tried to do downhill running as a strategy to improve running economy. I don't think they found any, any effect, but well, research is, is, uh, always tricky from, from this perspective because you, you get, underpowered studies so you may get 12 13 people and you don't have uh, a difference there maybe just because they're not 
there's not enough people to be to be involved in to, to get tested in the study uh, so that may be a strategy even though again there's no evidence of it and i think again Kyle Barnes uh, for his PhD, he did an uh, uh, uphill running uh, intervention and he may have found some, some effect there, but uh, don't quote me on that because I think the sample size was very, very low. I think they got five different type of uphill running uh, exercises and uh, uh, they found some effect uh, for, for some of the, of the training sessions, but the sample size was very little, literally less than six people per per type of training so again very difficult to give any insights on on these these numbers got it yeah and what about durability can you define durability and and uh, then we can move on to discuss the how durability and, and economy might be connected yeah so um, durability it can be possibly defined uh, as uh, the fourth factor of endurance performance, uh, or, well, that's what some authors they've been pointing out recently. And I think the first one doing it has been Andrew Jones, uh, uh, firstly, in his paper with, uh, uh, with the analysis of uh, Eliud Kipchoge and other people involved uh, with the Breaking Two study. And, uh, and then, uh, Stephen Saylor and Ed Maunder as well in a review paper uh, back in 2021. But yeah, basically is the ability of the athletes uh, to uh, maintain uh, their physiology or their the biomechanics efficiency or any of the f- parameters that we can measure that they can influence performance consistently over time. So there's a lot of, uh, well, a lot. There are a few papers now out about cycling and how the power re- power duration relationship changes as we fatigue and uh, how high-profile athletes, uh, so World Tour cyclists, uh, they can maintain uh, high power outputs even after a given amount of work compared to junior athletes or under 23 athletes. So yeah, it, it basically just tells you, well, are you able to maintain uh, your uh, uh, ability to produce efforts uh, in a fresh state uh, all the way till the end of a race or all the way to uh, uh, after a given amount of work you've produced uh, uh, or uh, any type of interval efforts you you may you may do. So there's some research happening at the moment also about interval training and how that uh, uh, may affect uh, um, parameters such as uh, the power duration curve or other other variables that can be measured. Mm. So so clearly uh, for most athletes and the the best athletes maybe have the the least decremented performance but there is that decremented performance if you go out and do a a a solid ride for three hours and then you try to do your or you try to do a hard 20 minute effort at the beginning and the end you're probably going to be most most listeners here are going to not do as good in the the one at the end of a of a hard three-hour ride and uh, that's what a lot of the uh, the the world tour cycling is about being being at your strongest at the end of of the stage um but uh but there's also the fact or the question of what are the physiological parameters that are 
maybe changing underneath that performance change. So how much do we know about about that in general? And then maybe we can discuss how running economy is uh, is a part of that. Yeah, that that's a great question. And there's a lot of interest at the moment. There's quite some field data, but uh, there's limited evidence of uh, what are the physiological changes happening. Uh, you, you do get a lot of studies related to fatigue and how that influences or how the development of parameters changes due to fatigue. Uh, but one thing that uh, is probably very important uh, uh, from an applied perspective is the specificity of the task. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, where you get two cyclists uh, that they perform uh, a given amount of uh, power for two or three hours and then they, uh, they still be able to maintain uh, high powers uh, then. Uh, so that's the performance for their events uh, with running uh, and let's say the marathon. You basically just want to be able to maintain that pace without having a cardiac drift or having changes in your biomechanics and so on. Uh, in triathlon, it differs even more because you got the ability to basically cope with uh, the high intensity efforts of the bike, uh, uh, speaking about uh, uh, short distance uh, and Olympic distance, so sprint and Olympic, uh, you got fast swim that uh, that has to allow you to be in the pack for for the for the ride, and then you got the bike which is usually quite intense and with high intensity efforts, and then uh, you got the run which is well sort of even paced, uh, but well it depends where you're sitting in 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 the race in that moment. So the demand and uh, the performance uh, uh, changes, the determinants of performance changes uh, uh, and physiological changes uh, that happen in the bike uh, off the run uh, uh, or even just on the bike itself uh, from the triathlon is going to be completely different than the demands uh, and the changes of physiology that are happening on the World Tour cycling team. So if you want to try to look into what is changing physiologically and how that can inform performance, you probably need to be quite specific with uh, your sort of fatiguing protocols. Uh, but yeah, in general, from what we've seen, uh, critical power drops, uh, LT1 also, uh, VT1 also seems to drop. There's a study from uh, uh, Ed Mander and uh, uh, Stevenson, 2022, about this. And they found that with, uh, I think, recreationally trained athletes, uh, VT1 dropped uh, from uh, a fresh state after two and a half hours of cycling around VT1. Um, you've got changes in uh, cycling efficiency or running economy, and we can get into the details of that later. But basically, it seems that you've got an increase in oxygen cost that leads up to uh, it leads up to an increase of uh, uh, basically your fraction of utilization of VO2 max. And then as for VO2 max, uh, well, we've got data from our lab uh, that are not published uh, yet, uh, but it seems that VO2 max also changes and it seems to, to drop, whether that is VO2 max or is uh, VO2 peak, so the ability just to uh, produce high-intensity efforts uh, uh, but that may not be a real view to max physiologically. Um, it's a different thing, but yeah, it seems like your ceiling is also dropping. So basically, uh, to keep it simple and running, for example, you have, 
an increase in oxygen cost and a decrease in VO2 max. So your fraction of utilization, if at the beginning is 80%, after two hours, it may be 85, 87% VO2 max. And that will have an influence of everything else in the race. Uh, same for biomechanics related parameters or, uh, fatigue related parameters from a neuromuscular perspective. So central and peripheral fatigue, they're going to change, uh, dehydration. So you'll have, uh, uh, most likely, uh, dehydration occurring during the exercise. And uh, if you're getting dehydrated above two to three percent, you may incur in reduced, uh, uh performance uh, because of uh, the literature that is available on that. And basically just like reduced ability of, uh, uh your uh, biological processes to, to be optimal. Uh, you've got increasing cold temperature. So again, uh, when you're exercising the heat, uh, you're not going to perform as well as, uh, exercising in in a fresh uh, condition and uh, well that's basically i wouldn't say similar but but as your code temperature goes up uh, your metabolism uh, uh, just slightly changes and your homeostasy is not going to be as optimal anymore so these are just like a few uh parameters that we can measure that they change during exercise uh, how do these link to performance uh, it will be very, it will vary depend on, depending on the event and uh, and how specific you want to be with that. Uh, another thing, it can well be maximum sprinting speed. So I don't think there's any study out there measuring the changes in maximum sprinting speed pre post uh, uh, continuous running. Um, now, actually, yeah, there are a few from Ivaskola in in Finland and. Uh, uh, there again, they did the fund drop between 15 and 20%, I believe, uh, or let's say 10 to 10 to 15, just to be on the safe side. Uh, so your ability to produce uh, maximal efforts also reduces and, and W prime, D prime, uh, they may be reduced as well due to that. So that's the anaerobic capacity that you can, you can have above critical power, basically. So there's, Basically, most most factors seem to be uh, affected naturally, as as we would expect, I, I guess. And I think a key point that you made was about the specificity that if you want to assess how whether it's physiolo- physiological markers or just the performance itself, how it's affected, then being specific about the protocol. I remember uh, when talking with. Uh, I actually can't remember if it was uh, Adil Tweiten or Olaf Alexander Bu who talked about it, but when the Norwegians had been doing quite a lot of specific testing uh, in the Tokyo build-up with just doing a 1,500-meter hard or all-out swim and a 40K bike or one-hour bike and and doing tests, doing running tests in a fatigue state or doing biking tests after that 1,500-meter hard hard swim and, and so on, so just testing really specifically. So that's a that's an excellent point, and but that would obviously be different for a marathoner or a world tour cyclist. They would design the protocol specifically for those activities. Is this something that you have tested within the Italian Federation doing tests in a fatigue state? Uh, we're considering it. Uh, it's not happening at the moment. Uh, again, it's very difficult logistically, but I think it may be valuable. Uh, I think we've, we're at the point where we can have an idea about uh, the parameters that we want to measure. Uh, and that they may change more than others uh, due to fatigue development. 
mainly from the from the bike. Uh, but yeah, at the moment uh, we we didn't test any any of these parameters yet. We we're on on our way to convince some some of the athletes or coaches to do it, uh, but uh, yeah, didn't do it yet. I think the uh, Danish team are doing something related to that with uh, half Ironman and Ironman distances, um, and uh, yeah, can't think of any anybody else that uh, that is testing it at the moment, uh, at least from 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 the trials and world. Uh, again, it's very difficult. Uh, for, for athletes as well, and that's one of the conversations that I had with uh, Andy Show and, and Andy Jones as well, as well, how can we test uh, this capacity without affecting the training of the athletes? Because uh, with this level of athletes, you really need to push them towards the limit uh, to get some changes that are significant and they, they're not only noise from, from the measures. Uh, so. If they're within the error measurement, then you're just not sure if this is changing or not. And if you want to get outside that uh, uh, uncertainty, well, with this this level of athletes, you you need to push them very hard. And then uh, if you push them very hard, uh, then they may take two or three days to recover. And uh, most of the time, they don't have two or three days to recover. So that's one point from from the athlete and uh, and the program and the other one from us as a support team but you just don't have enough time in the day to do it because you would have uh, probably two and a half uh, hours or maybe three hours of testing for one single athlete and then you have to repeat it over seven or eight uh, well it really depends on how many you want to test so with the Norwegian team, uh, maybe Olaf had just Gustav and uh, um, and Blumenfeld, so that may be a bit more suitable. Uh, but if you have a big group uh, and with big, I believe, if you speak about six or seven, it's already big for, for this type of testing. It really requires you a lot of work. Uh, plus, you may want to test uh, the fresh condition first. So you may want to test, I don't know, economy or Max or whatever, or critical speed, power in a fresh state uh, and then in a fatigue state. So you would have to have two tests within maybe 10, 15 days max. Uh, and yeah, that adds up uh, a lot of layers of compli- complications from a logistical perspective, as well as uh, time constraints, com- time constraints perspective. Yeah, and, and not just the recovery before the test, but even if you are going to do, a, a, let's say, a fresh state VO2 max test, you don't want to do it the day after you've been training for six hours with a lot of quality, right? Because that you, you need, maybe you don't need to taper fully for it, but, but at least you don't want to be fatigued for it. So you have to adjust the training before it a little bit, don't, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that can be standardized, I think. So you... M- because triathletes, they are consistently uh, training in a semi-fatigued state uh, just because of the volumes they have. So as long as you standardize that, I don't think you'll have a big influence of it. Uh, so as, as we said at the beginning, you, you have to compromise something. So if you want to test, uh, let's say, view to max fresh and then a view to max in a fatigued state, uh, then uh, you may just... Uh, maintain similar workouts or training sessions uh, let's say the two days before and then and then trial it uh, but yeah at the moment i don't think it's, it's feasible uh, um, unless you do it maybe off season but then if you do it off season you're measuring something else because you don't have that 
amount of work accumulated that is going to lead up to the races. And as we said before, as you want to be specific, uh, uh, if you test uh, that capacity six months, well, in, in interacting six months off, it doesn't happen, but in running it may. Uh, but let, let's say two months off a race and then two weeks of a race, the physiology is going to be quite different from the athlete. Uh, so it is quite complicated. Uh, one thing that may be helpful is maybe measuring uh, like training data and looking to like long rides or run off bike uh, from training data and see how these, they, they change over time. Maybe changes in heart rate uh, due to or changes in uh, the mm, ratio between heart rate and and pace uh, changes. So if you have, uh, it's called. I think they they try to name it as decoupling. So basically, the difference uh, between uh, the heart rate corresponding to the pace in a fresh state uh, versus what's happening when you're fatigued. So if your pace drops uh, and your heart rate remains stable, you have decoupling. If you have a uh, same pace but heart rate goes up, you still have decoupling. That um, I, I can't remember how it's defined, uh, but it's part of the uh, review paper from from under I I've mentioned before. So that may give you some insights, but uh, again, it's not going to tell you the physiological changes. It's just going to tell you well, the athlete is is having a high effort, is slowing down or or not. So possibly a bit easier from from field testing, but uh, yeah, you'll have quite little insights from a physiological perspective exactly and and with decoupling there's the problem of the environmental factors that for example a lot of a lot of athletes are especially think about age group athletes that don't start their season in in march necessarily in in abu dhabi like the short course elite athletes do but they might be gearing up to start racing really now uh in the northern hemisphere in at the end of may as we're talking or june july and they might be getting fitter and fitter compared to the winter but as the temperatures get higher and higher outdoors you might not really see that in the decoupling data because heart rate at least is something that i personally can see in my training data that my heart rate is definitely higher now than it was in uh let's say february for the equivalent workout just because the temperature difference is so big uh i don't think that that means that i'm any less fit i don't i don't feel like i am so if you're going to use that method then you have to really factor in the temperature and and make it somewhat standardized again but um going moving on to i guess the important follow-up is there are there things that can be done interventions uh, that can be done or uh, just factors we should be aware about regarding how to improve your durability yeah uh, i think there's no well there are a couple of uh, ideas around and uh, um, there's not really a proper intervention that has been done so far uh, we've got a couple of uh attempts, uh, let's say, to look into how, let's say, strength training, for example, can improve uh, uh, your performance in a fatigue state or repeated sprint training can improve your performance in a fatigue state. And they're coming from the group of bent runners studied in, in Norway. So uh, I think the first paper with Elite athletes at least, uh, was from runners studied in 2011 with uh, uh, elite cyclists. They got three hours uh, of uh, uh, cycling at 45% Pmax. Uh, well, basically just like easy 
ish uh, riding and then they had a five minutes all out test and they measured it before and after uh, 11 weeks of strength training and they found a seven percent improvement in the uh, five minutes uh, time trial performance they then repeated it with cross-country skiers and with uh, female athletes with uh, couple of other studies in 2017 i think they've been published and they said they found similar patterns for which uh, strength training seemed uh, to provide a benefit uh, to the performance uh, performed in a fatigued state um, and they measured the uh, oxygen consumption throughout uh, so we can call it it's not really uh, running economy because, of course, it's not running. Uh, uh, but basically, the oxygen cost uh, or the view two of the exercise and how that drifts uh, or how that drifted uh, during during the trials uh, and uh, with uh, with the elite uh, trials with the elite cyclists, uh, meant uh, runners that found that uh, uh, there was a slight uh, decrease in in the drift of oxygen from zero to three hours with the training group compared to the control group um, and that's something that we've just finished to do uh, with runners as well here at Loughborough uh, so we had an intervention uh, uh, still not published we, we're going to present it at uh, uh, ECSS a conference that is happening uh, in, in a month or so basically we've got two groups of uh, 14 uh, well-trained athletes uh, uh, with well-trained uh, women. Uh, uh, I think the 10K performance was about 39 minutes. Uh, so far, quite far from uh, what well, for the athletes that we've been talking about now and the athletes uh, uh, that just train regularly. But for research, it's, it's a decent standard level. Uh, and we've got uh, them running 90 minutes and then do a time to exhaustion at 95% uh, VO2 max. And measured that before and after uh, ten weeks of uh, strength training intervention, and we did not find actually an improvement in running economy in a fresh state. Uh, but it seems uh, that the drift uh, towards the end uh, didn't happen as much uh, after the the intervention with the strength group uh, compared to both pre-intervention and control group, and uh, also time to exhaustion at ninety five percent got. Uh, roughly 40 percent better uh, so that that can help with enhancing uh, this fatigue uh, resistance fatigue development durability uh, parameter that we've mentioned uh, again it, it needs to be specific so we did the, this protocol because we wanted to inform marathon performance so the intensity of the 90 minutes was roughly at marathon pace uh, and at five minutes at the end uh, uh, well, actually, slightly faster than marathon pace, and that five minutes at the end uh, were basically uh, intended to be like the final kick of the last uh, kilometer or two of the race. When when you want to push yourself uh, over the finish line, or you have to produce high efforts to to win a race. Uh, at the moment, uh, you see more and more races where you get three or four athletes that are all the way to 38 39 kilometers together and then eventually somebody can can uh, lead and and win with with almost like a sprinting finish which is which wasn't the case a few years ago uh, so that's something that well we've been trying and there's some evidence uh, from other sports uh, 
You, you have evidence of uh, uh, carbohydrate intake as well. So the group of Andy Jones uh, with uh, Ida Clark, uh, film papers 2018, 2019, uh, they've got uh, two hours of cycling uh, uh, between uh, GET and uh, critical power, and then they measured critical power uh, in, in a conditions with carbohydrate feeding and uh, one with placebo. And they found that critical power didn't drop as much with uh, carbohydrate feeding. And well, that makes sense. Basically, you want to eat carbohydrates uh, to be able to maintain your ability to uh, uh, maintain your physiology similar to uh, a fresh state, which, which links up to what we said before with uh, the potential effect of carbohydrate with reducing oxygen drift uh, during exercise uh, and and just uh, reduce the uh, amount of fat that you're using which are less less efficient uh, some other interventions that uh, can be helpful is possibly training volume over the years uh, or just like consistent exposure to aerobic exercise uh, there's no intervention for that but that's basically what you, we've seen with these papers about comparison between uh, under 23 athletes and world two cyclists uh, so they world two cyclists they've got more time to be exposed to to they to, to year in year out uh, high volume of training and uh, well that seems to be uh, logical as well and if you look into some other sports uh, it may make sense uh, so with uh, running for example middle distance runners uh, 800 1500 meters uh, they can be very successful even if they're quite younger so uh, 18 19 20 years old uh, records uh, they they not very far from the world records uh, whether if you look at the marathon it happens very rarely that you get a very high-performing athlete uh, being younger than 25, 26 years old. So that uh, may connect uh, to to that uh, narrative. And uh, perhaps on triathlon as well, uh, you tend to move to longer distances as you, as you age. And uh, uh, if you look at the arena games, for example, which are very short, uh, you have young athletes that they compete they can compete quite well, but then when they move towards uh, the Olympic distance, they're not uh, ready yet for it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com and you can find lots of links, uh, both to related episodes that I've done here before on the podcast uh, with guests we mentioned or, and uh, also uh, papers that we mentioned throughout this interview. I won't list them all, but uh, if for those of you interested, there's a bunch of links to uh, other episodes and to papers that are related to what we discussed here today. Next Monday, we will have part two of this interview, and uh, here is a tiny extract of what you will hear then. The very, very first thing that Renato does is just, just targeting the race uh, and then say, okay, we know that we can run at this pace or we aim to run at this pace based on uh, the time we've got and where, where is your starting point, and then moving backwards from there. So you got your specific target uh, and then you got uh, the support from the endurance and speed side so you got uh, let's say five percent well speed uh, specific speed plus minus five percent uh, and then plus minus ten percent and then plus minus fifteen percent uh, and that sort of creates a final of uh, speeds and intensities that uh, they need to be targeted 
doing uh, during the training period. Um, so you you want to start off from the extremes, uh, so from the speed and endurance perspective. Uh, when we speak about specific workouts, so you still have uh, the uh, easy aerobic uh, exercise just as a uh, aerobic support and maintenance and uh, uh, just easy training really uh, but on the other hand uh, when you look into the workouts you've got maybe you start off 20% or 50% uh, slower and faster as as targets for your workouts and then you finally closer and closer to the race pace as weeks and months uh, move uh, move forward all right, so that is what you will have uh, on tap for next week, so stay tuned for that. I also have a piece of housekeeping here, and that is just a reminder that I have a few Q&A episodes planned that I will be recording shortly, and uh, I have the following topics. So if you have uh, questions on any of these topics, uh, you can submit multiple questions on multiple topics, then please send them to me via email, ideally, and I'll put them in my list. So the topics that I will be doing Q&As on are one, racing, two, nutrition, three, myths and pseudoscience, four, technology, and five, testing. I don't know yet which order, but any of these topics, if you have questions, just send them in, please. The more, the merrier. A second piece of housekeeping is that for those of you that have reached out about coaching or training plans, uh, especially if you have reached out through a contact form on scientifictriathlon.com rather than email me, emailing me directly. My email, by the way, is michael at scientifictriathlon.com and I believe it's in the episode show notes as well. Um, but if you have reached out through a contact form uh, and you haven't received a reply, then it may be because my email gets stuck in spam filters. So in that case, try to email me directly uh, or better yet, uh, contact me on Instagram or Twitter uh, because that is uh, just an issue that I've noticed that uh, not everybody receives my emails. It uh, yeah, it looks like I don't know a mass email address, scientifictraveling.com. So uh, so yeah, in certain cases, I have uh, you you may not have received my reply even though I did reply to you. And in that case, I would advise you to just reach out through another channel and uh, yeah, then we can uh, we can discuss. So sorry if that has affected you. Uh, I promise that I, I get back to all uh, all inquiries. And uh, yeah, it's definitely not something that I haven't missed any emails or anything, but it might be a spam filter issue. So yeah, just try again, please, and we can get that sorted. Uh, all right, so that's it with housekeeping, uh, a bit more than normal uh, for this one. But let's finish off now. Thank our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get in a time-efficient Senate workout that will help you swim better in the water. You can try the Senate risk free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on senatesweekcare.com or slash TTS. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft. Love.